how are we going to reduce the reflected sound of underground spirits now, Francine? How often do you think you reread Pratchett books, like, without us being on a deadline like this? I tend to treat them like palate cleansers. Like, it's very rare I do, like, a full reread. Yeah. But say I've just finished reading a trilogy or I've just read a particularly heavy book and I want something that's easy reading and not new afterwards, then I'll read, like, a Pratchett book or a couple of Pratchett books. So I'll read, say, a few books from the Guard series, a few books from the Witches. Yeah. What about you? Do you know what? I'm not sure I've ever done a full read-through from beginning to end. But I would go and read, like, three or four at a time. Maybe twice a year. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Oh, and then I would revisit the favourites and on a couple times, like uh, um, Nightwatch or Masquerade. I was really into reading, like, a lot at one point. Oh, really? And, uh, oh, The Last Continent is, I think, my favourite next to Nightwatch. Yeah. In fact, I would flip between them depending on mood like I, I think Nightwatch is probably objectively the the better in inverted commas yeah. book um but The Last Continent is one of the few books that still makes me absolutely belly laugh as an adult like as a teenager I feel like it was easier to get those belly laughs out but now a book has to be fucking incredibly funny to make me do that and The Last Continent still is even after so many rereads yeah I have to say I'm more likely to get the belly laugh from one I haven't reread for a while. Because in something like Nightwatch or Monstrous Regiment is one I reread a lot. That's a bit of a. Um, I think I described it the other day as it is like I'll hold the book up in front of my face and then a film plays. I've yeah. read it so many times and yeah. I know all the beats and what happens. Yeah. But one I haven't reread for a while will suddenly surprise me with a joke I'd forgotten or one yeah. I've missed before and haven't got. So, like, I hold off on rereading Soul Music too much for that reason it's one of my absolute favorites but i love it yeah because it's an oh that reference right and you don't want it to become just a movie playing in front of your eyes yeah that's why it's been quite cool rereading this with a stack of post-it notes and actually stop and think about everything you've read and gone is that something i can talk about is that Mm. worth talking about yeah yeah and then whittling it down because you can it's like oh i love this line oh i love this line like if i if i'm reading a pratchett book in the same room as jack i am unbearable because a he does not really care for discworld and b knowing that fully i will still read out passages every mm, two and a half minutes or so probably (laughs) (laughs) right okay let's do like the podcast or something Oh, should we make a podcast? Mm, Yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. The first book that we have read in an analytical fashion to regurgitate at you is The Colour of Magic, which is the first in a kind of what's it called a couplet instead of a trilogy a couplet i like that so let's say that um a couplet of books the color of magic and the light fantastic um which were released in the early 80s 1983 i think 1983 for the color of magic the book itself is kind of split into almost four novellas and so we're going to do just the first one of those today and then in the next episode the middle two and then in the last episode, probably like the last one, the third episode rather than the last, unless we really get sick of each other, in the next <laughs> few hours, 
So, uh, yeah, the basic idea is to recap these books and chat about some concepts within and just try and get a different perspective on things. Yeah, talk about why we love them. As much as this comes from a place we love, maybe highlight a couple of things that could be done better or that, well, not could be done better. I mean, you're so reluctant to say that. But yes, it's okay to say could be done better because he got better at writing. And I'm sure, like, okay, yeah. I'm sure he would go back and do it better if, like, you yeah. had the dance. So maybe look at it from a slightly different perspective. Mm. Yes. So, a note on spoilers for this podcast this is a spoiler light podcast. So, obviously, for the book we're discussing, heavy spoilers for the entire book. Mm-hmm. This is a spoiler podcast. Yeah. In that respect. <laughs> However, for the series as a whole, we're going to avoid revealing any major future plot points and anything that happens in the final Discord book, The Shepherd's Crown, we won't be discussing until we get there. Yes, Um, because there are people who are holding off reading it for various reasons. And hopefully those people might come on the journey with us. (laughs) Because you sounded so wanky. (laughs) I was about to say I sounded wanky. God damn it. Right. So. Sorry, yeah, read the blurb down. The Colour of Magic. Mm. On a world supported on the back of a giant turtle, sex unknown, a gleeful, explosive, wickedly eccentric expedition sets out. There's an avaricious but inept wizard, a naive tourist whose luggage moves on hundreds of dear little legs, dragons who only exist if you believe in them, and of course, the edge of the planet. Do you think that Pratchett wrote his own blurbs? Reading that, no. Do you not think so? Would Pratchett refer to the luggage as having dear little legs? Mm, no I suppose not I don't know maybe if he was trying to sound I, uh, the main reason I think he didn't is that for some reason the edge of the planet is in capitals and at no point in the book is it ever referred to as the edge it's always oh yeah like, yeah oh good point hmm. yeah I believe you then uh, if you have any knowledge to the contrary listeners please. then please at Joanna that's fine I don't read them um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you right so we begin with the Colour of Magic, which is the first section within the book of the same name. Here we have a very fantasy introduction. So it's at this point we should probably say that Pratchett set out with the Colour of Magic to properly take the piss out of fantasy tropes. Yeah, he said in an interview he wanted to do for fantasy what Blazing Saddles did for Westerns. Yeah. <laughs> so it's we're, we're in full parody here. Yeah. I mean, later on, the, the universe kind of grew into its own thing and and even actually a little bit in the second book, but in this first book, it's very much spot the fantasy trope and how we're going to take this out of it for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so with, with that in mind, um, he introduces his universe in a very grand and you know, string music way. Um, I can hear cellos and <laughs> possibly kind of some kind of roaring bass, drum roll, orchestra. Yeah. Sorry, this is this is an <laughs> annoying thing I will probably do multiple times and we've talked about this because I write for stage and screen and things. I will start describing this as if I'm writing it as a script and this is how it goes. It's a film. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I read these things and for me it goes from scene to scene. It cuts exactly as the book goes and it's blam blam blam. Whereas for you you are imagining the connections and seeing seeing the camera pan lovingly over the whore pits of Angmore Pork. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to the whore pits. (laughs) The Hobbits? You know I like to skip to the Hobbits, darling. 
<laughs> For this one, maybe we could just read out the first couple of paragraphs because it's quite so grand. <clears throat> in a distant and second-hand set of dimensions, in an astral plane that was never meant to fly, the curling star mists waver and part. See. Great Artuin the turtle comes, swimming slowly through the interstellar gulf, hydrogen frost on his ponderous limbs, his huge and ancient shell pocked with meteor craters. Through sea-sized eyes that are crusted with room and asteroid dust, he stares fixedly at the destination. Yes, and this is uh, interspersed with capitalised words. The destination with a capital D. I love random capitalization. Do you? <laughs> I mean, no, I hate. I was about to say, as an editor, it makes my eye twitch. Apart from if you are obviously doing this with the the sense of enormous gravitas that is necessary for a fantasy introduction. I mean, not just a fantasy introduction, but what he is introducing here is a giant interstellar turtle on whom's back. Whom's? Whom's back? <laughs> whom's <laughs> On whom's back? Touches <laughs> four elephants and four on their elephants. backs rests the disc that is the world. The disc world, um, which has seas falling off the edge, which is called the rim, and there's a rainbow around that, and and the hub. The hub is the middle, and there's a giant mountain where gods live at the top, and it's all very, very fantastical. It is marvellous and probably where flat earthers get most of their ideas from. Yeah, right? No, 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 no. Wait, no. Hmm. Flat earthers say that we're bordered by a cliff of ice or something. I don't want to misrepresent the flat earthers' position and get any emails at all. So, <laughs> Flat earthers, please email us. We might, we <laughs> don't just make me set up a filter for that. I don't want a filter for that. <laughs> I'll run the email account. <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> Look, we just want to know you're okay. You're getting enough water. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. With the, the introder, with the mm, with the introverse thus universed, <laughs> with the universe thus introduced, um, we skip pretty much immediately to the meat of the beginning of the plot, which is Ankh-Morpork, the main city, is on fire. Yeah, there is also in this introduction to the world, we get a brief tiny discussion of uh, the city of Krull which perches right on the edge of the world and they're Mm -hmm. the ones who uh, because of where they are they're able to do a bit of space exploration by hanging off the edge and looking down like I imagine an entire city of people lying on their bellies looking over the edge of the world going I can see my house no more on Krull later but for now we have introduced the idea that space travel may be a possibility one day kind of thing yes and that, you know, people on the world are vaguely aware that they are on the back of a turtle. Yes, yeah. Elephants. Well, some parts of the world, anyway. Yes. So with that in mind, we kind of zoom in on one... City. One city, which is Ankh-Morpork, which is pretty important throughout this entire series. It, it is the city as far as the Discworld books are concerned. Yes. Other cities are available. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty heavily modelled on London in some ways. It's got a very exaggerated kind of class system with with ank being the the rich and yeah. pork being the pestilent slums somewhere in this book it is described as the city that all other cities are based on yeah so there's this sort of idea of the multiverse and parallel universes that oh. is not very heavy in the book mm. but does crop up occasionally across Discworld. yeah oh that's a good point yeah i never read it like that but Yes, so he's trying to say that all these other cities that might look a bit like Ankh-Morpork are just copying Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, so. it's almost like, uh, 
the um, platonic ideal of a fantasy city. Yeah. <laughs> without going too much into platonic ideals, because it's been a long time since A-level philosophy. Yes, and as we've said, we are not very good at pronouncing Greek. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, it's on fire, which is something he probably couldn't have done quite so casually in the later books because so much of everything is based around a fairly short amount of time in Angmorpork. But for now, it's okay just to burn the whole thing down. Yes. Um, yeah, because in other books, like you get really deep into the infrastructure of the city, which meant if the city caught fire, that alone would be a book. Yeah. This is... Oh, a city's on fire. Right, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't got any characters that we need to follow up with and all of that stuff. And, yeah, and yeah. I quite like that he opens the book with burning down one of his main locations. Yes, I think it adds a kind of refresh button that he can use later as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it but comes in handy. It does. Um, so from... We, we know Ank Morpork's on fire because we're watching it through the eyes of two dudes on a hilltop. Yes, Brabd, the Hublander, and Weasel. Weasel, so who are sort of barbarian-y, heroy types. Yeah, they're they're watching Ankh-Morpork burn down with kind of casual detachment you expect from people who spend all of their time killing dragons and rescuing virgins. They're they're casual heroes. One of them apparently moves a bit cat-like, which is that's what I look for in a casual hero. Yeah, yes, he does immediately launch into the kind of fantasy trope descriptions of people as well, like the weird watch this character, see yeah. how lithe and cat-like he is, but. The other one is leaning on a sword that was only marginally shorter than the average man, which, you know. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? I like... He just kind of adds a little twist of humour. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't... Even though that's not really a funny description, it's something lighthearted enough you wouldn't hear it in a fantasy that took itself seriously. Like, at no point is anything taken seriously in these books. I really like that everything is equally up for grabs, from barbarian heroes to... Lovecraft and horrific temples again we'll get there mm. <laughs> and at this point as they're watching and kind of taking bets on which bits exploding um, <laughs> uh, we enter briefly our protagonists our pair of protagonists yeah let's not although, call them our heroes yeah I was <laughs> I skirted around that word uh, although one of them is unconscious at this point I believe the lad who's still on the horse is uh, Rincewind um, who is as the two describe him a gutter wizard and that's as far as we get for now <laughs> a scraggly looking fella but a wizard and the other guy is called two flower and we get the luggage sneaking up behind and yay the, yay, luggage. the luggage oh should we come to the luggage later though yeah let's yeah, talk yeah. about the luggage when we when we meet them proper because this yeah. is almost uh we're going to have a zoom back in time yes yeah, but we are getting the first footnote oh yes the first and Possibly, we've yet to scientifically analyse this, possibly the longest footnote in the Discworld. And footnotes are one of the best things about the Discworld. Yeah, Pratchett it doesn't use them the same way as he does in this book forever. Yeah, this, this first footnote is very much just explanatory and they become very much part of the humour and part of the story. Yeah, yes, he almost uses it as kind of back and forth with his own narration later on. Yeah. Whereas this, it is... Uh, what did we work out? Like fucking 38 lines or something of, I did write this down, um, of uh, world building and absolute nonsense world building at that. This this giant footnote explains uh, that the two major directions on the disc are hubward and rimward, so towards the centre or away from the centre. That is relevant later. There's also a long description of how often the disc turns and how the sun 
rotates around the turtle, which means apparently the disc has eight seasons, which I don't think is ever relevant again after this. No, no. (laughs) The only parts of the seasons I think are actually relevant is that there is a night called Hogswatch Night, which is uh, the big winter solstice. Technically, there's two winter... What's the plural of solstice? Is it solstice? Solstices? There's two winter solstices. No, because that would make it a solstice. Oh, that would be... Gr- ah, hmm. Right, no. Don't get me on this. Right. I beg you, do not start me on the suffixes. <laughs> suffixes? Oh, fuck me, it is suffixes. Wait, oh, no, shut up, Francine. Go. Go, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point on our Twitter feed, we will release just 20 minutes of Francine explaining plurals. <laughs> Nobody will like me. Um, uh, yes, anyway, so... I'm not entirely sure at this point whether he's just taking the opportunity to jam in all this world building or whether it is meant to be a piss take of the kind of unnecessary world building that's jammed into bad fantasy. I think it's a combination of like this much intense world building does happen in fantasy in fantasy novels that don't really need it. Mm. But I do quite like with this that he sort of goes, right, I'm doing this world building. Mm -hmm. I will explain why this world is ridiculous and why it works. Mm but I'm not going to bother doing a bunch of expositional dialogue. I'm going to dump it in a footnote and then we'll move on and it will (laughs) never be relevant again. Dump in a footnote so large, you're not really sure which bit's the main text when you open that page. (laughs) Yeah, it is really difficult, actually. Mm. And then we pretty much launch into a flashback of Rincewind telling the two men on the hillside why Angmore Pork is aflame and um, what they have to do with it, because of course they do. It, there's a little bit of an explanation about the fact that the, the city is on fire is not really going to be an end to the city. Yeah. Which is a nice kind of almost leaving it open. Yeah, for sure, yeah. So, it's a, again, it's almost like London, which has burned down a couple of times, but been rebuilt in its own footprint. Yeah. Um, as that kind of thing. And I do really like the fact that he describes this fire as... Um, it was a fiery punctuation mark, a coal-like comma, or a salamander semicolon. <laughs> salamander semicolon is possibly one of my favourite phrases in the book. It's yeah. so satisfying. Salamander semicolon. Highly recommend pausing the podcast and just saying that out loud to yourself. <laughs> Maybe not if you're in public. Don't do that on the train. <laughs> yeah, so flashback. Boom. Ducks and more pork. Who's this getting off the boat, Joanna? Is it Two Flower? It is Two Flower, yay! He's one of our two protagonists, and we're meeting him properly now. Yes, he looks faintly bewildered, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. That's the default I... state of being for, for Two Flower. Yeah, it takes a while till we get to like a full description of him, but he's basically described as wearing some kind of odd breeches that end at the knee. Cargo inc- pants. <laughs> an incredibly brightly coloured shirt of some sort. Hawaiian. And he appears to have four eyes glasses which took me forever to work out yes because we've, we've got the early issue early edition that has the josh kirby color illustrations so because... but he's got four actual eyes on this one and when i read this when i was like 11 or 12 i just referred to the cover quite a lot i was like right yep four eyes and i considering i was called four eyes quite often i did not make the connection that two flower is in fact wearing glasses which is just <laughs> unknown in angle fork at this time yeah um but this is what I really like about how Terry Pratchett describes things, is he describes things that we would know about and people in the world wasn't. So he describes them confusingly. Mm. He describes them as people in the disc world would see them, mm-hmm. but well enough that we immediately... In or theory. not so immediately. <laughs> 
If we're not 11 years old. <laughs> and if we're paying a bit more attention than sometimes we do. Yes, and we're not sort of skim reading in the way that we do at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. He's dressed as a tourist. He's wearing shorts. He's It's not said, but he has probably got socks and sandals on. Yeah. He's got a big Hawaiian shirt and he's got a... He's got glasses. He looks like a total yeah. dork, and we and yeah. we love him for this. Oh yes, but yeah, he's he's a stereotypical tourist nerd, yep. kind of character um, who gets out of phrase book, who gets out of phrase book um, and start and starts reading from it. I wish to be directed to a hotel tavern lodging house in Hospice Caravanserai. Anyway, so he's gotten off and just established himself as so much of a tourist you can't even, yep. and then alongside him is one of the greatest characters in the Discworld who is mm, Joanna how, how would you describe the luggage he's a very angry box a very angry box with legs with legs many legs many legs so those many are the legs. dear little legs referenced in the blurb so many dear little legs um, but <laughs> yeah he's, he's a, a chest like with a, an old fashioned opening hinged curved lid and uh, as we find out later the big old mahogany tongue and blah. rows of sort of big white wooden teeth yeah <laughs> but only sometimes yeah so again I, d- I don't think we find this out until later on but he's made out of a thing called uh, sapient powerwood which yes. is a magical it's a tree that grows in high magic interference areas oh nicely done yeah um made and that up. it can open it can open up and it's got food inside and then it'll close again and it'll open up and it's got your freshly laundered clothes in it and then but also it eats people and things and also it's as i said it's quite often quite angry which is what i look for in a in a sentient box <laughs> personally i like an angry sentient box yeah you wouldn't want a chill one like what's the point yeah no i want my i want my sentient box to be able to eat people he's angry and very clingy he's very clingy and at the moment he is inc- savagely loyal yeah, to, to Toothflower, who is his owner. I should point out that there also seem to be some very shiny gold coins that Toothflower is. Oh yeah, yeah. Toothflower's immediately going around paying everybody with very big gold coins, which has got the attention of the local beggar population, yeah. who are a little more organised than you may imagine. So Toothflower is led off to the pub, the Broken Drum. Yeah, he's led off by a, a beggar to the local pub, and he is spotted by another beggar, who goes to Emor. The greatest thief in Ankh-Morpork, Emor. Emor. Is he? Yeah, Withal's the next one down. Oh, yeah, He's the chappy who tried to kill him, only lost an eye because Emor appreciates some of that ambition. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Sorry. It's got one of your favourite quotes in it, this bit, hasn't it? Oh, God, it does. Uh, this is right at the end of it. So Withal, the second best thief who tried to kill the best thief, is this guy's sort of henchman. Mm-hmm. Uh so being Emor's right hand man was like being gently flogged to death with scented bootlaces <laughs> but you sort of get the impression he's a bit of a Fop. head thief mm. a, yes bit foppish mm-hmm. but probably does very little of his own thieving this bit these days he's outsourcing but they're, they're, they're hearing about the fact that this rich bewildered dude has just turned up on the shores of Mount Moorborg and obviously this is of interest to thieves because the dude's got a lot of money for now cut back to the broken drum Yes. Two flowers now there. The Broken Drum is the pub and the tavern. It is the... It is referred to again and again through the series, really, isn't it? Yeah, it at one point becomes the Mended Drum. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I really need to go... We need to make a note of when that exactly happens because I always mean to look that up. I feel like it goes back and forth. 
Oh, so because it gets burned down, because it gets demolished and burned down and rebuilt so many times, so it's the broken and then the mended. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But it's the setting of uh, many scenes in the disc world, most of them violent. Two Flower the Taurus is being introduced to the barman. Still speaking from his phrase book. He doesn't really know what he's saying. Uh He's someone... He he gets the hang that someone is saying food, Mm -hmm. looks it up in his phrase book, and comes out with, yes, cutlet, hash, chop, stew, ragu, fricassee, mince, collops, souffle, dumpling, blancmange, sorbet, gruel, sausage, not to have a sausage, beans, without a bean, kickshaws, jelly, jam, giblets. All of that. I don't know why lists are so funny, but lists are really funny. Mm. I'll tell you why lists are so funny. Um, is this a tool of rhetoric? Yeah, it is because people don't speak like that. And obviously one of the main aspects of comedy is the surprise and just things being slightly off. If I say to you... Um, without pausing or umming and ahhing uh, name your ten top favourite foods go cheese uh, chips no I can't do it without pausing yeah, yeah. exactly so reading out a, a list like that is so out of anyone's real wheelhouse that it's just funny as fuck all the time um, even if it's just read out of a guidebook as we, as is kind of implied anyway. yeah anyway so I think that. there's also something about the ending of giblets. Giblets is just a giblets. funny word. Yeah, it is a funny word. I think what I is said it, it wrong. Chef? Uh, bits from inside. Oh. Organs. Oh, organs. Mmm, gizzards. Mm, gizzards. Does not... that all come under the name of giblets? Or? I have no idea. I oh, really no. should Look, it's not often I dismember a chicken. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes, anyway. So, watching this interaction is uh, Rincewind, who hey. we now get a proper introduction to uh, and he looks like a proper bedraggled magician-y type. You had something vague to say about the... Yeah, I mean, in his description, is um, some might have taken him for a mere apprentice enchanter who had run away from his master out of defiance, boredom, fear, and a lingering taste for heterosexuality. And I don't know, there was just something about the lingering taste for heterosexuality bit that... Slightly rubbed up the wrong way? I don't even know if it rubbed me up the wrong way it just seemed like a funny implication yeah and i i may have just totally read it wrong to be fair but it always felt like it read a bit like it was implying something similar to a sort of priest and choir boy relationship right okay yeah see to me to me i think i just read it as because there were no women around and so yeah. like homosexual relationships were possible but if you're heterosexual then obviously not that yeah yeah. and that could definitely be right but also i'm thinking about this at this point it's not really the unseen university gets introduced in the next sentence so we don't know that the unseen university is a big male only wizards college yet yeah that's true which it is by the way yeah Yeah, yes by the way (laughs) but yeah no you're right i mean if 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 we can both read the same sentence and come out with different implications like that then maybe it could have been worded more carefully but obviously in the early 80s like that just wasn't on oh yeah no definitely not and it's yeah, not like radar. i'm reading this and going ah, i'm clutching my pals horribly no. offended no yeah but you, yeah you can point out like when things could be more carefully worded now and it's interesting to see because i mean we're talking 40 years ago nearly god i can't believe the 80s and nearly 40 years ago mm. so it's so, interesting to see the evolution um so he gets he gets introduced anyway as a, a bedraggled looking wizard type and but but you can tell he's a proper wizard because he's got the octagon um the pendant. Big bronze octagon yes which belongs to the unseen university which is the university full of wizards yes. on this world which is in ankh morpork and it is 
super relevant in a lot of the books. Um, not so not really this one. This one has a bit of backstory to do with it, but the the unseen university gets really explored in the next book. In the next book, yes. Just get get yourself some mouse blood and a few matchsticks in preparation for more. That's all. For now, he is at the bar looking all yeah. miserable with beer, but overhearing then, this odd conversation between the rich tourist and noticing that there is a box of sapient pearwood. Uh-huh. Rincewind recognizes that this amount of sapient pearwood is insane. Yeah, just money wise, like that's worth more than. The whole chest full of gold. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Rincewind obviously decides to help out and finally finds a common language with this guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, Trob? I'm going to go with Trob. Yeah. Because it's nice to say. It is nice to Trob. say. Yeah, Rincewind's good at languages, uh, which is pretty much, along with running away, the only thing he is good at. Yeah, we were sort of, we have talked about this before, but I always find it a bit weird that Rincewind has such a good head for languages. It just seems really... Conveni- it's a convenient yeah, thing. He's, is, he's yeah. a Babelfish character. Yeah, exactly. I think, and especially if, um, especially if Pratchett was not really intending to go much further than these two books with the character, yeah. then why would you bother doing anything else? Like, you can yeah, yeah. either introduce a Babelfish or just make Rincewind speak all the languages. I know, it's a tiny bugbear that, because we will come across Rincewind again in many books, it's never really explained why he's good at languages. No, he's just, just good at it. <laughs> just, it just it happens to speak lots of languages. Yeah. So when when they finally can talk to each other anyway, Rincewind is uh, surprised to learn he's from the Counterweight Continent. And again, it's it's a, it's a character having reactions to things that you kind of infer the way things are the way they are. So we know that people aren't coming across other people from the Counterweight Continent very often. Yeah. Um, we know that sapient pearwood is very rare. Um, we know that massive coins full of gold being flung about willy-nilly are disruptive because Rincewind tells to a flower that he has to stop that before he gets his throat cut. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we also know that tourists apparently aren't really a thing. No, yeah, no one comes to see the beautiful dank Quaint. alleyways of Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> Which is great because he does this whole naive tourist thing. He talks about the... Ta- he uses the word quaint. Yeah. Um, he wants to meet the heroes of Ankh-Morpork. Uh, he wants to see a bar brawl... A tavern brawl, sorry. Um, and Rincewind is horrified to hear all of these things. <laughs> I do quite like the little inter- interlude with the fortune teller. Uh, looks in her scrying bowl, sees something, decides to run away... And then happens oh, yeah. to die later in a freak landslide just as her house collapses in front of the I just like that as a little interlude. Absolutely. Um, two Flower convinces Rincewind without too much convincing to be his guide while he's around Ankh-Morpork. Yes. Um, pays him absurd amounts of money, gives him a deposit, which turns out to be a mistake as Rincewind fucks off almost immediately to try and run away out of the city. Yeah, I mean... I'm not sure I can blame him. No, I mean, this is kind of one of the things I like most about Rincewind is that he's very straightforward and predictable in his motivations and actions. He is self-preservation above all. He is cowardly while still keeping his head about it, if that makes sense. Like, he's very rationally cowardly. (laughs) Yeah, so this is a fun thing talking about this one because Rincewind is kind of one of your favourite Discord characters in yeah. the books that feature dis- and I'm I don't dislike him but I'm really not super into the Rincewind books yeah like 
until we decided to do this, I probably hadn't reread Colour of Magic for an incredibly long time. It's not one I go back to, and I don't really go back to any of the Rincewind books. Yeah. So it's quite nice as we do this, you kind of convincing me why I should actually quite like Rincewind. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, yeah, I just, hmm. I. I'm not saying you have to convince me and that this is your task. No, but I'm taking that upon myself. <laughs> but I think I'm seeing more of it as you talk about, you know, I like this attitude, I like his fatalism and his running away. Mm-hmm. I, I have always been attracted to a cheerful nihilist, uh, as we know. But <laughs> <laughs> he's but I, definitely a cheerful nihilist. Yes, and yeah, he's he's the definition to me of realist rather than pessimist. Yeah. So he's, but because he has such a terribly unlucky life, he is correctly assuming the worst is going to happen. So it's <laughs> pessimism. From dressed in realism, yeah. <laughs> or realism dressed in pessimism, one of the two. Um, anyway, he, he's running away because he thinks bad things are going to happen if a tourist is throwing around huge coins of gold and now he has the money to get away. Realistic. Um, however, side, what, what's this, a cutaway, a side note? Uh, what do you call this theatre lady? Uh, I mean, so, sorry, we don't do a lot of cutaways in theatre because... Oh, because of the stage? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, screenwriter. What we do is we, we set up another stage behind the audience, and at a certain point we just drop the curtain and say, turn around! That would be really cool. Yeah, no, I kind of would. I've done, been to immersive theatre, things like that, actually. It sounds really cool. It's not. It's horrible. Oh, okay, because you, don't get you to have sit to stand down. up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. no, I don't like standing up. Yeah, no, I'm really into this whole sitting down thing we're doing. Mm. Um, yeah, so we cut to uh, the patrician of Ankh Morpork, which is... I'm not going to get hyped about as a character introduction... No, but it's interesting to note because he becomes an important character later on and this is... It's a seed planted for yeah. what's going to be a major character yeah. and that's cool. And a lot of the personality traits are there but he's also described as having lots of chins and rings and... Yeah, at the moment he's one fantasy trope. Uh, yeah, he's very the, much evil, the... dictate, evil city dictator. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think he evolves into something that becomes a fantasy trope but I'm not sure it was one at this time. The kind no. of cool, calculated, tall, probably good-looking black goatee. I think he's still somewhat villain-coded in this. Mm. And he he's quite a ruthless character later on, but he's not a villain. Mm. Anyway, so mm. the patricians picked up Rinspoons. Uh Because, as it turns out, the emperor of the Counterweight Continent, which is a big, ancient, powerful empire, has said, look after this two-flower chap, because he's one of ours. And we the patrician goes, Rincewind, you will look after this two flower chap because he's one of theirs, and if you don't, the Empire is going to make things very bad for me, which means I'm going to make things very bad for you in the meantime. Scorpion! Scorpion pit! Is the scorpion pit there yet? I don't know, I just mm. hoped there was a scorpion pit. Well, he does also. There's an implied re- scorpion pit. There's always an implied scorpion pit, that's what I love about these books. <laughs> um, he does offer Rincewind a crystallised jellyfish, which. Ah, yes. Could be foreshadowing. Could be foreshadowing. Maybe yeah, later. Foreshadowing. Maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we yeah. Yeah. So Rince Wind, thus threatened, fucks off back to the broken drum, where there is a brawl in full swing, and people are swinging off the chandeliers and throwing swords at each other and biting ankles and all of that. I imagine there's some sort of jaunty sea shanty turned heavy metal playing behind. Oh, do it. you? Oh no. Oh, that makes me sad. Well, you know, with lots of quick cuts. Oh, see, no, you're you're seeing it in movie again. I can't see. To me, it. It, to me, it's just all. Oh, this is going to sound 
pornographic, all sweaty grunts and... <laughs> yeah, but you need, that's the point. If you're going to have lots of down and dirty fighting, sweaty grunts and someone swinging on a chandelier, you need music to offset it. Oh, no. So the, dir- the dirtier... Two pirates the... of the Caribbean. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. All right, maybe I would make terrible films. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's the thing. It would make a good film, but it wouldn't be very... Okay, um, have you ever fallen in love by the Buzzcocks? That would be a good background music for this old time brawl. All right, yeah. No, that's a good compromise. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> I may have nicked that from Shrek too, to be fair. I mean, right, fine. moving on. Mm, mm. So, tap and roll, some sort of music playing behind it. Mm-hmm. Rincewind's like, oh, fuck, because terrible things are happening and I'm yes. meant to be saving this dude. However, as it happens, two flowers fine. He's asleep upstairs. And when he gets woken up, he wants to see a tap and roll. He wants to see the tap and roll, which is a bit more kind of stress on this naivety, idiocy slash um, thing that he's got going on. Um, it's but- very sweet. It is. And I feel like we've all met somebody a bit like that. Wherever we live in the world, we have met a tourist who comes along and says, ooh, I want to see insert horrible thing about where you live. It sounds so cool. And you're like, ooh, I guess we could go see that. So Two Flower is very excited to see a tavern brawl while Rincewind is rightly wanting to not die. Yeah, yeah. Um, And while they are gently discussing this, um, a watch sergeant barges in. He's just here as a prop, really, because we are introducing the iconograph. Yes, the iconograph. Joanna, tell us about it. It's a camera. <laughs> it's a camera, basically. Well, it is a, it's a camera, and at the moment we don't quite know how the camera works. Rincewind sarcastically says he's got a box with a demon in it that draws pictures. And I think at this point in the book, Rincewind still hopes that it's not. It's something clever with coloured plates and lights and glass. Rincewind kind of wishes that things worked in the logical and orderly fashion that they do on on Round World, but kind of shakes himself out of it and thinks, oh no, for goodness sake, back to reality. We know that magic causes all of this and chaos reigns supreme. and... And this is where Rincewind discovers that People will stand still if you hold it up. Oh, now I have a camera and you will all do as I command. Yeah. When I was little, my mum used to have a camera with her a lot because if I cried and she pointed it at me, I was guaranteed to stop crying and smile and pose. Oh, God, really? I know, yeah. I was I was one of those. Even I didn't grow up to be the kind of person you'd think after that. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. I don't mean I got really like you were a terrible child. Just mm. That's not like the you that I know. Mm. Whereas I uh, just have a bunch of photos of me ugly crying as a child because that clearly didn't work. So yes, uh, mm-hmm. brief albatross interlude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love albatrosses. 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 <laughs> Again, 20 minutes of Francine explaining. It's not even explaining though, is it? It's just me trying out different suffixes until I find one I like. <laughs> Again. It doesn't matter if it has any grounding in reality. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so we Fuck have an albatross interlude. Yeah, albatross interlude, uh, where another message comes from the um, Empire. And then we go back Agatean to... Empire, which is probably the same name. Yeah, Agatean Empire. So now it is... Time for Rincewind and Two Flowers to go on a little tour of the city. Yes, that's right. They go on a little tour of Angkorpork. They have lunch together. Very nice, very nice. Uh, the concept of insurance is introduced, or mm. in-sewer ants. In-sewer ants, Yes. <laughs> Along with um, reflected sound of underground spirits. 
Which, reflected noise of underground spirits? No, reflected sound of underground spirits, yeah. and it took us both a very long time to get that joke. Yeah, even, even though, though it is directly explained later on, we just both missed that somehow. Yeah. Mm. Well, like I said, I haven't reread this one a whole bunch, so I have that as an excuse. Anyway, they're on the tour of Angmorpork. They have lunch. They talk about in Suarance. They visit the Horpits. They visit the Horpits, and then eventually the iconograph runs out of uh, pink, which is when <laughs> Rincewind lands. Directly connected to the Horpits. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Actually, that's so the Horpits are a thing, and this is again, we're talking about future books, but they sort of stop existing after these first two, and eventually we get the Seamstresses Guild. Yes. Which, as a person who likes sewing dresses, I'm not going to call myself a seamstress on a Discworld podcast. <laughs> this is probably another one where we can go, ah, things weren't great in the first couple of books that Horpits are a thing. Yeah, no, but I feel like that's the but point. They- Oh yeah, no, that is very much a thing that you would have had in 80s high fantasy and 60s yeah. would have had whore pits. Yeah. And I think that an arena is mentioned at some point as well. Yeah, which I think never comes up again. <laughs> which is a shame. I feel like more characters could have been thrown to lions. <laughs> Not that, you know, I dislike how they were written, just I like the thought of fictional characters being thrown to lions. Mm. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. that's, that's your fetish. Keep it off the book. <sighs> Look, can we not yuck my yum, please? <laughs> I hate that that's the thing, by the way. Well, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. Yeah, I think that's such an ugly sentence. It's it's not that I don't like the concept, because I do, and I've talked before about I don't want to be the fun police when people are terrible people. Um, but yucking a yum just sounds so bad, doesn't it? It is. It sounds like something for toddlers. Simultaneously, one of my least favourite phrases, but the very first time I heard it, it was Kate Leth, who is a brilliant Canadian uh, cartoonist and artist. And basically, because she was guesting on another podcast I listened to, I really liked the phrase just from her because I'm a fan of hers. And then immediately hated it when I heard anyone else say it. Right. Sorry. <laughs> but the concept is good. I like the concept. The concept like, is great. The yeah. phrase is horrible. Yeah. We will try not yeah. to say it. I'm, I'm guessing that just because you're better at internet culture than I am, I'm guessing the point is that if someone says, oh, I really like this, if you go oh, that shit, then you're a twat. Yeah, it's a... Most of the time I've actually heard the phrase used, and this is a huge diversion, it's specifically within fandom and talking about things that you like in fandom. So specifically, you know, people who like certain ships or are just really... Like ships with an apostrophe. Yeah, ships is in relationship yeah. type things and they like sort of pairings of certain characters... And I've heard it used in a, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. I don't want to say that these this pairing that you really like is bad. It's just something I'm not yeah. into. So I've mostly heard it used in a fandom yeah. sense. Is it now used in the same way that no offence is? As in, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but this fandom is terrible and you're terrible. I've never heard it used that way, but I am sure it will get that way. Or I'm just not in the right part of the internet because I'm not on Tumblr much anymore. Oh, yeah. I never was. See, that's another... Um, Life, journal, and Tumblr, both things that completely passed me by, so I think this is why I know nothing about fandom culture. I was heavily invested in fandom culture. Less so now, but also it depends on the thing mm-hmm. and the discourse. I think there's a joke about Super Who Lock on Tumblr. Uh, sorry? People who are really into... Supernatural, Doctor Who, and Sherlock had these really active, very fandoms on Tumblr. and oh, was Supernatural a thing? Like a... a- a TV series. Sorry, yeah, sorry, I thought we were on the genre. Right, yes. No, no, yeah. no it's like a 13 
seasons or something. Okay. <laughs> I've never watched it. I'm just aware of like a, the fandom around it, and there were lots of terrible people. Right, probably okay. some good ones as well. Like this is not a criticism of people who like Doctor Who and Sherlock. Oh, it is me. Things. I'm criticizing you, all of you, <laughs> <laughs> including myself and Joanna. So that was a lot of Tumblr fandom culture for a while, and, mm. and there's a lot more to it than that, and it's a lot more nuanced than I think I really know about it. I'm I am a casual observer compared to some people, I guess. Yeah, which I is... don't know. All of the people I know who are very into things also seem to have quite active lives, like career-wise and social-wise. I don't know what do they sleep. Finding people who have these things in common with you, like it can be a really lovely thing, and people talk a lot about toxic fandom, but I found some really good friends through different things like mm-hmm. we've talked a bit about um different histories with internet and i was engaged in sort of music fandom stuff and that was where i found a lot of good friends and i kind of yeah. am now like with um i'm a big fan of amanda palmer and i've made a lot of good friends through yeah that group sounds incredible and supportive to be fair yeah it still has its moments as any large gathering of people on the internet will yeah i think there's definitely a critical mass point where everything becomes fucking terrible yeah i'm swearing a lot suddenly i'm sorry i'm not i've reached my critical mass coffee point possibly <laughs> <laughs> yeah um we've completely done yeah how did we even get onto this where are we so we're at the Horpits. <laughs> That's how we got onto it. <laughs> the uh, politically incorrect Horpits. Yeah. So we're in the we're in the Horpits, and uh, they get mugged. Yes, they get mugged by uh, Wiggle, who we saw earlier, the second best thief in Ankh-Morpork, um, and uh, two flowers kidnapped while Rincewind scarpers. Yep. We find out that the albatross was um, telling the patrician that. Two Flower is now um, to be killed instead of looked after, and that uh, that note came from the Grand Vizier. Um, and you made a note about the title Grand Vizier. Yeah, it's so. I will come back to this as we go through the rest of the books because the trope eventually gets some interesting stuff done with it, and it's very throwaway here. So. The whole idea is that the first note came from the Emperor of the Agatian Empire, who's a young, idealistic boy. Mm-hmm. The Grand Vizier is this... Um, it's a big trope, not just in fantasy, but in pop culture in general. The pa- evil power behind the throne, and it's these, like, uh, Jafar and Aladdin's a uh-huh. really good example. And so the idea is this Grand Vizier thinks, actually, two flowers should be killed, We'd, otherwise this will just cause dissidents in the Empire, blah, blah, blah. Evil character. There is some problematic stuff about evil grand vizier as a weird kind of racial trope okay and something that fantasy does less now but definitely i would say in the 80s and maybe even early 90s there are a lot of kind of weird evil east tropes foreign is mystical okay so like unnamed asian country yeah but inscrutable and yeah inscrutable east yeah Um, like um like uh Chang makes fun of in community before he goes mad. Yeah. Oh, madder. So Grand Vizier is actually a common term for ruler from Persian-influenced Islamic states, and it has its origins in the Ottoman Empire. Oh, that's okay. got, yeah, that's what I got from my research, mm-hmm. which was fun. And it's one of those things, it is a really common fantasy trope. It is kind of a racist trope, but it's a trope that is being made fun of here. So it's definitely not saying like, hey, this book is really racist. Yeah. It's a trope that's being made fun of, but it's that whole thing of, is it parody if you're just doing the thing? Yeah. And I'm not making a big fuss around it anything now, but I think it's interesting to point it out now because the idea of a Grand Vizier character is, and 
this particular trope is mm-hmm. going to come up again in future books. And kind of looked at in more detail and explained as... Yeah, it, get, it gets a bit of exploration yeah. and it gets made fun of a bit yeah. more. Yeah. Um, it gets highlighted like, oh, that guy's called Grand Vizier, he must be evil. Mm. I think that definitely comes up. I can definitely see, like, even if it wasn't a deliberate parody here, I can see Pratchett being someone who would put it in without thinking. Because I, like, literally, until you made this note and I asked you about it the other day, I'd literally never thought about the term Grand Vizier. Like, I it never crossed my mind to look into its origins. Yeah. So I, I can imagine that if he didn't... I can imagine him not knowing, putting it in, and then later going, ooh, I wonder about this. And then that ended up being some of interesting times. Yeah, well, I think the whole thing with the Agatean Empire, like, so it's more than just the, the use of an evil Grand Vizier. Yeah. And like I said, that's a that's a really common villain trope, and it's a little bit racist. But the whole idea of the Agantian Empire is this far off eastern mystical mm. land, powerful and old and wise, and yeah, all of those things. Yes, that's all weird eastern tropey stuff, which he did in this, and then he kind of justifies it in interesting times. He then mm-hmm. turns that into a really interesting allegory for um, Sovietism and. Yeah, Sovietism and the Cultural Revolution at the same time, yeah. Yeah, so he he does something fun with it. I don't know if... I don't think it was planned this far in advance, but I think he kind of looked back at it and went, okay, so I I just did a weird exotic East thing. If I now look at the East on the round world, what can I do with that exotic East to actually use it as an allegory? And I think he he does end up using it really well. Um, Oh, this is another one of those things. Uh, Allegory, what... I could probably use it in a sentence, but I'm not sure I could distinguish it from things like pastiche. It's, um, oh god, I will honestly have to use the Google. Oh, that's fine, use the Google, I'll put on some hold music or something. A story, poem or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. So I may actually be misusing it here. Mm. Uh, I may just mean analogy or representation yes I, yeah i meant analogy rather than pastiche earlier as well see this is the thing when we're talking about analyzing books we should probably get ourselves like a reference sheet for this stuff because otherwise we're just going to be throwing around literature adjacent analytical words see i'd rather not have a reference sheet just throw uh, literature adjacent analytical words around willy-nilly and let people correct us on twitter it gives you <laughs> it provides discourse ah, i don't like discourse joanna <laughs> you know, i don't like discourse and that's why don't I have... at me i was so glad when don't at me became something you could say <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah but also i run the twitter account so mm. um yeah the patrician sends for the head of the assassins guild Yes, to do the um, that's being introduced to do the Grand Vizier's bidding. So we now know basically that there is a state-sanctioned price on Two Flowers' head. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the luggage, our darling little chest on the dear little legs with the <laughs> terrifying teeth, is uh, threatening to push Rincewind into a river. Threatening without words, with uh, just very vehement body language as you can do when you're in box you yeah. gotta shove your shoulders this way and that um and the 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 imp and the iconograph is kind of interpreting yeah um and saying yeah basically you have to go save two flower now rinse wind otherwise this luggage will push you into the river and you know we're both boxes so we'll be fine don't know about you mate <laughs> you're not in a box yeah i kind of feel like it's 
I feel like Rincewind's the kind of person who can't swim. I'm not sure if it's actually said or not, but... I think at this point he can't swim. I think at some point he'll probably force himself to learn. Yeah, yes, it, it does give you a completely new escape medium. I don't think the Unseen University has a pool for them to do laps in. No. I feel like Ridley And, and his mother ran away before he was born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when's that even said? Like, in my head, that's the first thing he says, but clearly not. We know. I have a note about it somewhere, um, but I feel like it happened. It will happen in our third episode. Ah, the end. The end. Uh, what's it called? The, the end. Get the denouement. Although it's not really denouement because uh, this is one of a two-parter, so the denouement's really more rising action. Sorry, what denouement? Uh, so this is um, something I'm probably going to get wrong. Fermat's pyramid, which I learned is about. That when like Fermat's theorem. <laughs> Maybe I don't mean Fermat. <laughs> <laughs> Fermat's theorem is an unsolvable mathematical thing. Okay, can Freytag. we edit this? So I say Freytag. Yeah, sure, why not? That sounds like something cool. I'll take the time to do. No, you're not going <laughs> to leave me sounding like a dick on this podcast, honey. Anyway, pyramid. I can now see how it's spelt as well, which makes me happy. So denouement. Denouement, yeah. So Freytag's pyramid. So you have rising action, falling action, denouement, which is the settlement. Uh-huh. But it's kind of incorrect for me to call the last section of this book the denouement because with it being a two-parter, yeah. it's also its own little novella. Yeah. And it's a cliffhanger. Yeah, I think you can give it its own structure in that case. Um, because, so this is really interesting. I'm going to have to look this up properly. So Freytag's pyramid um, has exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, denouement or resolution. Yeah. Um, that sounds reasonably similar to something I was reading about the other day, uh, which is the story structure that Dan Harmon wrote about. So Dan Harmon was community writer. Yeah. Um, so it's like a circle. You draw a circle and uh, there are eight eight sections in it. Uh, one, characters in a zone of comfort. Two, but they want something. Three, they enter an unfamiliar situation. Four, adapt to it. Five, get what they wanted. Six, pay a heavy price for it. Seven, then return to their familiar situation. Eight, having changed. And you can look at any narrative and see that pattern yeah um and you can see it within each episode of a tv show even mm-hmm. which makes me think that yeah you can absolutely have your pyramid for each section of it yes yeah, so, mm. but also there is that overarching thing which is not just color of magic but like fantastic as well yeah. so the kind of nerdy thing that we would actually probably have quite a lot of fun doing is getting both of these um theories on paper and kind of mapping them per little novella in the per book. That'll probably happen yeah, at some I, point. <laughs> I can't promise we'll subject you to it, but, um, but we might I feel do like it. we're going to do that. Yeah. Okay, in cool. fact, can we make that homework for the listeners? Could someone just do that in three years? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you know me, I'll just try and put it in a spreadsheet. Oh um, God. <laughs> Francine, stop making I can automate this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... So Rincewind realises he has to go get two flags, otherwise yeah. the luggage is going to eat him. Yeah. How did we get to this from learning to swim? I, I don't feel like we need to retrace our steps here. But he goes and finds finds uh, two flower, or goes to find two flower, because two flower right now is in the pub again. He's just been taken back to the pub. Yeah. <laughs> he this does not this just keeps happening. <laughs> two flower does not know that he has been kidnapped. Now he's having the conversation with the innkeeper, uh, trying to sell him insurance. Yes, insurance. Insurance. And as that is happening, we are introduced to the head of the assassins. Zlorf Fanel. Right. 
Red lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry, zloth flannel foot. <laughs> zloth flannel foot. Yes, the elegantly named. Um, zloth. Zloth. See, zloth. that's very Douglas Adams again, isn't it? It's more sci-fi than fantasy. Mm. But then again, Terry Pratchett, big sci-fi fan. So. Well, also, um, The Dark Side of the Sun and Strata, which were kind of... They're not yeah. Discworld books, but they were kind of proto-Discworld. Mm. Um, and again, we might do a, a little episode on them at some point. Mm. Maybe. They were sci-fi. Yes. Uh, Dark Side of the Sun especially is a, is a sci-fi parody. Do you think that's why Terry Pratchett always gets put into sci-fi and no i think bookshops are really bad about combining sci-fi and fantasy okay yeah but there's also a lot of overlap between fantasy and non-fantasy fiction yeah. and what you get is a really big fiction section and then sci-fi and fantasy yeah and then you get a bunch of speculative fiction in fiction when really it should be the sci-fi yeah and then you, yeah hmm. bookshops, bookshops. oh we should have a spreadsheet Francine, stop making spreadsheets <laughs> never <laughs> um hmm. yes so his little flannel foot is introduced he's the head of the assassins and he is not very much like the head of the assassins who we'll come to meet in later books. Yeah, I like that there's a slow... We start getting hints of the guild system. In fact, we get a nice little intro to the guild system because it yeah, we see the gets birth. formed. Yeah. Uh, the Guild of Merchants. Yeah. Um, and tourism. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the guild system is like a super important part of Ankh-Morpork, I think, because it, it illustrates like... the... What it kind of it, it it illustrates the backhandedness and the the crime that's accepted, but also the inherent structures that everyone finds. Yeah, that no matter how lawless you are, you will find a stru- your own structure to your lawlessness. Yeah. It's all got very yeah. There's probably like the guild of anarchists there somewhere. <laughs> there is definitely an anarchist guild. But also, I just really love that. I love world building, mm-hmm. and I love world building that makes sense and. As much as there is no need to explain that the disc has eight seasons, I love that the city has an infrastructure and we learn every tiny detail of the city's yeah. infrastructure as we go. Not all in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Um perhaps in one of his um one of his essays in the slip of the keyboard was talking about one of the Discworld conventions that I dearly wish I'd been at because they um they introduced a guild system just for the duration of the uh, convention. And like apparently within hours everyone had settled into this and there was bribery and there was blackmail and there were little kids going around saying oi mister i'm mugging you (laughs) (laughs) that does make me really happy for a dollar i'll bring you back to life and then i'll kill you again (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh that's so cool so yeah so we meet the head of the assassins and he's chatting to Imor, who i guess is kind of head of thieves yeah and they've got a kind of grudging respect for each other i suppose yeah one of them you know the head of the assassin's guild doesn't rob the other the head of thieves doesn't kill so for money for money (laughs) so they sort of come to an agreement you know basically either way two flowers unnecessary they just want his gold yeah and as things are starting to look a little uncertain for two flower uh we pop back to rincewind who jostles death in a crowded marketplace um and makes yeah. uh hold on a lovely little here i'll finally open the book maybe makes a lovely little reference to um the old story about appointment in samara one of my favorite tiny little t- 
tales. Um, fable. It's not a fable, I don't think. Well, I suppose it could be seen as a fable. It's definitely got a... Hmm, yeah. No parable. Okay. But it's about you can't outrun death anyway. Somebody uh, knows that they're going to be killed and runs away to another city and then meets death there going... Oh, no, I did see you earlier, but I was surprised because I knew I had an appointment with you here tonight, kind of thing. So, yeah. yes. You can't outrun fate. That's what I mean. Yeah, which will come up in mm. uh, the next section. That, well, that will come up in episode two, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, so, but, so we but, get introduced to death as a character. Yeah, so death as a character um, is huge. He's, Amazing. He's, yeah, he's um, one of the... Most consistent m- characters in the books, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And he's one of the most beloved. And I imagine... Well, in fact, I know I've read, like, Pratchett could not have, have imagined the kind of love that would spring up for his, uh, his anthropomorphic personification of death. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to spoil it a bunch for people who are reading for the first time, but he is going to become such a major character and you will love him. Mm. But this is this is one of the weird things reading this one where it's not planned ahead and where, obviously, stuff from past books is kind of ignored or retconned yeah, or... Yeah. This is not quite the death we come to know and love. Like this is a very angry and vengeful and vindictive, yeah, anthropomorphic personification of death. Um, You're so good at saying that without stuttering. <laughs> it's a skill. You're actor, darling. I practiced. Mm. Um, because yeah, he's kind of annoyed. He randomly kills a fish salesman because he's pissed off at Rincewind. It almost unsettles me because it's not the death I'm going to. Yeah. But so for first time readers, if you're confused about why we like the Grim Reaper so much, you'll get yeah. that. But for now, he's, he's popped up anyway for two reasons. One, so that we can establish that wizards can see death when most people can't. And cats. And cats can see death. <laughs> Not wizards can see cats. I mean, wizards no, yeah. can see cats. <laughs> I assume. I mean, it's never been specifically said. But also death is there because something terrible is going to happen. Which, yep. you know, I said that in a, like, mysterious foreshadowing way, but we already know I'm the forks on fire, so whatever. Um, <laughs> Ooh, I wonder what Ooh. the terrible thing could be. Oh. Could it be the burning city? Mm. What was it say? Um, it said he hummed a tune as cheerful as a plague pit or something. Um, yes. As he wandered off, yeah. Hummed a little tune, cheery as, cheery as a plague pit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Rincewind slightly worse for wear after that, I imagine, <laughs> um, <laughs> arrives at the... The thieves' headquarters. Oh, that's right, because he knows Imor has got him, and so he goes to try and find Imor. Um, is, it, is, it, is it important that he goes here? Is that even. No, I is think it it's just, just kind of drawing it out a bit. No, I think it's just introduces where Rincewind discovers it's a good idea to beat people up with gold, which is yeah. relevant when he starts another tavern brawl. <laughs> yes, yes, because he goes from the thieves' guild to the broken drum and throws uh, what is now referred to as a gold grenade, yeah. uh, which is just a, sh- a shower of coins goes everywhere and obviously starts a brawl. Yep. Um, in the midst of all of this, we find Two Flower, who's delighted that the violence is finally happening. And thinks that Rincewind has arranged it for him. Yeah, is... uh, it's weird, isn't it? It's like it's almost like Two Flower thinks he's at Universal Studios or something. Yeah. And watching all... Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't imagine Two Flower as a character taking pleasure in violence. No. But I, he does. I think he he's thinking of heroes and they're not real to him. They're book yeah. characters. Yeah, it's all stage fighting. It's like um, it's like WWF. It's so the, uh, the landlord's trying to sort of do something involving oil and candles and insurance yes, downstairs. So the, <laughs> the, the landlord's in the cellar and I actually, I've, I've made a, a post-it note that I'm going to refer to on this one. 
because Broadman is down in the cellar and he's fiddling with a tinderbox and uh, trying to obviously start a fire, but he can't because it's damp. And then a lighted taper appears in midair, right beside him. Here, take this. Thanks, said Broadman. Don't mention it. Broadman went to throw the taper down the steps. His hand paused in midair. He looked at the taper, his brow furrowing. Then he turned around and held the taper up to illuminate the scene. It didn't shed much light, but it did give the darkness a shape. Oh no, he breathed. But yes, said Death. Ooh, <laughs> I fucking love that. That's chill up your spine passage. And he hardly ever does passages like that, which is why, yeah. like, the, the real, um, fuck, yeah, the, the little horror cliffhanger. Dark, that, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> no, I'm very with you there. That is one of the. Ah. Yeah. Sorry, um, anyway, so, term. one <laughs> so of the ah. Rincewind's trying to drag Two Flower out of this brawl anyway, and he gets him as far as outside the broken drum when uh, Wizzle catches up with them. Yeah. Um, does a little standoff thing, uh, which is great because bless Two Flower, holding up a sword. Bless his little sandals right. and socks. <laughs> Rincewind trying to swear in trobe, which is not very possible. Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> You little such a one who, while wearing a copper nose ring, stands in a footbath atop Mount Ra-Rua-Ruaha. He brought this on yourself. During a heavy thunderstorm and shouts that Alahura, goddess of lightning, has the facial features of a disease, Ula-Ruaha root. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that's, um, oh, that's actually the second iteration of that joke, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's was... a lot of jokes about... Um, yeah, I think there's something earlier about if he was... A, he would be an atheist who stand on top of the hill in a thunderstorm wearing copper lightning shouting all gods are bastards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of the insurance policy flies high into the Discworld's atmosphere and eventually lands on the Betrobe Islands where they speak the language <laughs> of Trobe. Cute. Yeah, the Trobe language. And the simple islanders subsequently worship it as a god. <laughs> but that actually somehow improves their lives. So some of the minor religions faculty of Unseen University go and researcher and their verdict is that it only went to show <laughs> i fucking love that just the i feel like pratchett delights in those phrases that mean nothing and are used yeah. all the time so stands to reason only goes to show that kind of thing that this bloke in the pub told me yeah sort of, yeah it's one of that paragraph is weird because on the one hand i really like it on the other hand haha look at the simple natives also feels a bit meh. it's a bit weirdly colonial yeah, it is. And at this point, basically, Ankh Pork is on fire. Rincewind and Two Flower are fleeing. Having nick, well, bought some horses. Bought some horses, not even nicked the horses. And we uh, cut back to the hillside. Yep, we do get, in the meantime, Rincewind's still trying to understand uh, the syllables that mean this sort of magic that Two Flower talks about. Oh, the um, reflected sound of underground spirits. Economics. How the hell did we <sighs> not get this? Oh, groan. Groan. Go home. Terrible um, people. Right, so we're back on the riverbank. Yeah, and uh, hi-ho, hi-ho off to Churn we go, yes. um, which is a city apparently opposite Quirm on the map, was it? Sorry, we, we did have a map stuck up, but then we we changed venue and now we, we lost. We don't have the map handy, yeah, so as you look... So, hang on. Right, so turn right at the big tree. <laughs> <laughs> so east of Ankh-Morpork is Cherm, uh-huh. west of Ankh-Morpork is Quirm. Yeah. And somehow we are eventually going to get to the Wormberg, which is much further west of Ankh-Morpork, but yeah. that is being saved for the next episode. So, yes, yes Rincewind finishes telling his story around the fire mm-hmm. and announces he's going to 
take two flour to churn yeah for continue no apparent reason and i don't think that's ever expanded upon i think um, it's just <laughs> to continue his little holiday rincewind yeah. has decided right i've got to stick with this poor naive man and he's saying all of this in a fairly i've already snapped kind of way it's implied that he's also slightly not sober right. yeah they've been sat around the campfire drinking as he's told this story so he's an mm. unreliable omniscient third person narrator yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and they they set off for Cherm, leaving uh, Weasel and Bravd the Hublander, Bravd the Hublander, um, to go and see what they can ransack in the city. Yeah. Rincewind trots away with his lovely little four-eyed companion, falling periodically off the horse. Bless. I'm sure things flower. can't get any worse for them. No, things definitely can't get any worse for them in the next section of the book, which is. The sending a mate, and we will have a look at in the next episode. So yeah, so I think that's it for us today. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll probably work out how to end podcasts properly at one point. So that's it for this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us uh, the truth shall make ye fret pod at gmail dot com. Nice. Or you can find us on Facebook, the truth shall make ye fret. You can follow us on Twitter at make ye fret pod. Mm-hmm. and please remember to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts hey. thanks very much, we will see you next week for the sending of eight and the lure of the world yeah, two bits in one, double your content it's a really annoying thing to think like Oh, I just hate people who are really into the fact that they're into something while recording a podcast about a fantasy book series. Yeah, but like we're into it in a cool way. I'd say like yeah, we're into it, but we're not like into into it, and we're not really obsessive over it. But yeah, we're yeah, making we're just... a podcast about yeah. it. Yeah, but just like casually, like we've got coffee, <laughs> you've got gin. It's fine. <laughs>